Good morning. Okay, I want you to do something a little unusual. I want you to not open your Bibles. Keep them closed. Because we're going to do some Bible trivia, and I don't want you guys looking up the answers. Okay? I'm going to put a verse on the screen, and it will be unfinished. And so you're going to need to fill in the blank. Okay? Even if you're not familiar with the Bible or this particular passage, that's okay. Um, you'll be able to kind of follow along as we go and, and just fill in the blank what you think the answer might be. So here it is. It's 1 John 1, 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with blank. Now, how many of you expect that to say something like God or him or Jesus? Okay, well, now that I'm making a big deal about it, you're all, uh, uh, but think of, think of the logic here. God is light, in him there's no darkness. So if we're walking in the darkness, we don't have fellowship with him. That's what he said in the previous sentences. But if we walk in the light, you would expect it to say we have fellowship with him. But go ahead and click. What it actually says is we have fellowship with one another. Why does it say that? That doesn't make sense. I, I was uh, reading this passage for another reason, not for preparation for this message. And I was going through it really slowly. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you've read a book like a hundred times or you've watched a movie like a hundred times. And the hundred and first, you see something that you've, it's never really caught your eye before. And that was the case here. It, it was sort of like a curveball. And so... The question I'm asking is, why, why does it say one another? Now, if you're just joining us, uh, or if you haven't been here for a couple of weeks, this is the third in a four-part series on discipleship. And the first sermon, two weeks ago, we looked at and uh, saw that discipleship is a process of transformation, where a person actually becomes more like Christ. It's not just self-help with a spiritual label, it's an actual process where a person is changed. And then last week, we saw that one major metaphor for that process of transformation is living in the light, is being connected back to God, that we have been estranged from him and that we were living in darkness, but Christ came as a light so that we would not remain in darkness. And as I was looking at this passage and thinking about this sermon, it became clear that to live in the light with God requires that we live in the light with each other as well. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to dive in and look a little bit more at what discipleship means in terms of our relationship with each other, with other humans. And so now you can open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. It's towards the end of the Bible, but if you don't have a Bible on you, that's fine. The verses will be on the screen. They should also be in the worship folder uh, that you've got there. There's a little handout. So it'll be in chapter 4, verse 19. It says this, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, 
He's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. We love because he first loved us. How many of you parents in breaking up a fight have heard the phrase, he started it, (laughs) she started it, I'm not responsible for what I'm doing, I'm only responding to him or her. We're blame shifters, or at least our kids are, not us. (laughs) Well, John does something similar here, but he's not blame shifting, he's glory shifting. If anyone is loving another person, that didn't start with them. All of our love, he's saying here, is in response to God's love. He started it. This is what Henry Nouwen refers to as the first love. This is in contrast to what he calls, wait for it, the second love. Now the second love is the, what he would describe as the, uh, the human imperfect love that's a reflection of the divine love which is perfect, the perfect love of God. And what he says is this first love of God is totally pure. It is not manipulative, it is not self-serving, it doesn't have ulterior motives, there's no chance of rejection in it, it's not gonna be given and then taken away. In fact, Paul says that this love is powerful. No force in heaven or hell or all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, he says. In Ephesians, Paul says that this love has dimensions that surpass human knowledge. This love is, is wonderful. In this very book, 1 John uh, 3.1, he says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. But John doesn't just tell us that God loved us. He also tells us specifically how God loved us. In 1 John 4, 9, this is just 10 verses uh, prior to what we've been reading, he says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The proof of God's love, John says, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you want to know how God loves a person, you need to look at the life, death, resurrection, the teachings of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself taught that the greatest form love could take was that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did. For his friends, for those who would believe in him, he laid down his life and he said, I have come that they might have abundant life. He gave his up so that we could have true, real, abundant life. And John's point in this first verse when he says that we love because he first loved us is that our love for God, our love for others, it is all in response to this great first love. This connects to the idea we talked about two weeks ago that you can't be a disciple without first tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Without being convinced that God has actually done something for you, that his character and his nature are one that is wonderful and good and perfect. 
we are transformed by his goodness. And his goodness is specifically his love for each and every one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is a love that transforms us into people who are newly capable of loving on a new level. Now the next thing that John says here is that you can't just walk around saying, I love God, and then at the same time hate your brother. If you do that, you're a liar. You're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Why? Because if you can't love your brother, whom you can see, then how can you love God, whom you can't see? The reason is that it's harder to express love for an invisible being than a visible one. So let's say you've got a, uh, a fellow believer, a fellow physical human being here. You can see them, okay? You can touch that person. Now, you've got God, invisible, formless, you can't see. It doesn't make him any less real over here. It's easier to give a person to someone who can like physically unwrap it, right? It's easier to make eye contact with someone you can see and who regularly talks back to you in an audible voice every time. Now, I'm not saying God's not real, but the point he's making is because a human is physical and visible, it's easier. I mean, have you ever found it difficult to pray because you don't hear anything audibly? Or have you ever found it difficult to believe in God because you can't see him? You don't have that same problem with another human being. And so humans are a little bit easier to love because we can perceive them with our our senses. We can see them, we can touch them, we can smell them although that might make it harder to love them, but nonetheless, you know they're there. It's a little bit more physical and tangible, right? And the point John's making is, if you fail at the easier task, it's absurd to claim success at the harder one. If you can't add, then you can't multiply. If you can't walk, then you can't run. And if you can't love your fellow member of God's family, then you can't love God who dwells inside of them. This concept of love for God and for each other, I mean, it is, it is part of the fabric, the DNA of the whole letter of 1 John. Uh, challenge you, within the next two days, take 15 or 20 minutes, it won't take very long, and just read through all of 1 John. It's relatively short. And just look for this theme of love for God and love for others. And you'll see, it's, I mean, it's everywhere. It's almost in every verse, it seems. But do you see how this idea is connected to the previous verse, this idea of loving God and loving others being inseparably connected? We love because he first loved us. Well, if that's true, then if we don't love, we have not experienced that first love. So when John says uh, a person can't say, I love God and then hate his brother, because if you can't love the person who you can see, then you can't, love God who you can see or cannot see. And the question is, what does he mean by cannot love God? Well, he doesn't mean cannot in the sense that he's not able to. Like you might say, that person can't jump that high. You mean he doesn't have the physical ability. That's not what he's saying. It's more like proof that he doesn't. So you would say, this person's not breathing, so he can't be alive. This is proof of that. You don't love other human beings, you can't love God. This is proof of that. And that's what he's saying. You, it, it's, not a, it's not a matter of ability, it's just a matter of proof. It's deduction. 
And this flows right into the next thing he says. Because if you did love God, then you would know that one of his main commands is to love other people. God, through the person of Jesus, has given us this command. Here's actual three instances where Jesus explicitly tells us that we need to love each other. A new com- this is John 13. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. John 15, 12. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. This is my command. Love each other. One of the things that Jesus was known for was speaking in parables and being sometimes a little bit hard to understand and mystical, okay? Not so here. He's pretty clear. And this is not some kind of obscure teaching, not that obscure ones aren't important, but this is clearly front and center to Jesus, that we would love one another. Now, I want you to notice something important about these verses, though, including the one in 1 John. These are all talking about love among fellow Christians. This is not talking about a general love for all of humanity. That, that is a biblical concept, and the Bible will talk about that elsewhere, but this, this, the focus is specifically on fellow followers of Jesus. In fact, the passage in John 13 says, uh, when he says that it's by our love for one another that the world will know that we're his disciples, the idea is that the way we love one another shows the world what the love of God is like. We are showing them what they don't have and inviting them into it. Now, this same dynamic of love for God and love for others being inseparably connected, this is actually at play in one of Jesus' most uh, famous statements in Matthew chapter 22. And if you combine this uh, teaching with the parable of the Good Samaritan, you definitely do get the idea of a general love for all people. But let's look at it. It's Matthew 22, and uh, it says this. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Like, all right, let's give it a shot. The, the Pharisees failed, or the Sadducees failed. Let's, let's see if we can do it. Uh, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Do you notice the word the? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? How many commandments was the guy asking for? One. How many did Jesus give him? Two. Jesus refuses to separate love for God from love for other people. He he won't do it. Even if he will prioritize and say this is the first and greatest, but you can't walk away with that. You've got to also grab love your neighbor or yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. These are two sides of the same coin. They're two wings on an airplane. Without both of them, we're not going anywhere. And here's why. Because the same thing that disconnects humans from God disconnects humans from each other. When sin entered the world, It didn't just disrupt our relationship with God, it disrupted our relationship with one another. 
Think back with me to the story of Adam and Eve. God had planted this beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden, and he had placed the first two humans, Adam and Eve, to live in the garden. The Bible says that they were naked and unashamed. That's a great place to be. Amen? (laughs) So they're there, they're enjoying not just this romantic sexual relationship, but in, in every way they're enjoying intimacy and joy and closeness. Everything in the world is as it should be. Their relationship with God is good and their relationship with one another is good. Not just good, perfect, whole, intact. And then when they eat the fruit that God had commanded them not to eat, the first thing that they feel is fear and shame. It says that their eyes were opened. They realized they were naked. And if you remember the story, it says they covered themselves. Before they hid from God, they actually hid from each other. And there was at that moment a distance and a separation where once there was this love and joy and intimacy and closeness, the relationship was now marked by shame and fear. And later when God comes through the garden to call Adam to account and he says, what have you done? Did you eat the fruit? What does Adam do? She did it. (laughs) She made me do it. It's not my fault. He's a blame shifter. And since that moment, every one of us has done the same thing that Adam did. We have avoided responsibility for the things that we've done. We, before we were ever glory shifters, we have all been blame shifters. We are, we're just naturally selfish people. And I can make a joke here about kids, but really, the only difference is the grown-ups have figured out how to hide it a little bit better. We think of ourselves first. We, there's just this natural inclination that every human has to think of yourself as the center of the universe. And if you don't think that's true, then just wait till something doesn't go the way you wanted it to. Your reaction tells you, I was expecting everyone else to do what I wanted. In fact, the very next story in the Bible is about a man who murders his brother out of jealousy and an inferiority complex. This selfishness, this center of the universe thinking has infected all of us. And that sort of thinking does not only separate us from God, it also separates us from one another. And that's what sin does. That is its nature. Sin separates. It divides. It pulls apart what was once together. So every human conflict you have ever experienced, read about, heard about on the news, it's all a result of sin. 9-11 is a result of sin. The Civil War and every other war is a result of sin. The reason that 50% of marriages end in divorce, even those in the church, is because of sin. The reason we torture other human beings to get information out of them is because of sin. Sin is why the police will always have a job. It's why courts exist. Because we hurt each other. We violate the relationship Even those of us who are semi-decent people that will never see the inside of a prison, we are still guilty of this. The point I'm making is that the same cause of separation on a vertical dimension has caused separation on a horizontal one as well. And before Christ, there is something standing between you and every other person in your life. 
and that thing is sin. It prevents us from truly loving them with the full, perfect, first love of God. And so the reason that love for God and one, love for one another are so inseparably connected, the reason Jesus will give two commands instead of just one when asked for it is because the same solution for one is the solution for the other. If you claim to be done with sin in terms of your relationship with God, then why are you still acting as if that's the, ruling, um, the rule of law in your relationship with others? The same gospel that reconnects us with God reconnects us with our fellow human beings. The gospel has power not just to save us from hell, it also has the power to release us from our own prison of selfishness, from our own center of the universe thinking. Because we have tasted God's first love because we have been forgiven, we too can now love and forgive others in a Christ-like way, just the same way that God has loved us even when what's been done against us is severe and hard. The gospel gives us the power to move past bitterness, grudges, separation, and darkness. And as much as it's up to us, the gospel allows us to live at peace with others. The same gospel that heals brokenness here heals it here as well. Now, I realize it takes two to tango, right? You might want to forgive someone who doesn't even acknowledge they did something wrong. You might be seeking forgiveness and they don't want to give it to you. I realize that for full reconciliation, full perfect wholeness, back to Garden of Eden type relationship, that doesn't just happen quickly and that it takes um, more than one person to accomplish that. But the point is that your heart towards other people is never After Christ, never a heart of bitterness, a heart of uh, greed, manipulation, grudges, self-righteousness, or arrogance. It is always a heart of selfless, Christ-like love. You see, the love of God in the person of Jesus, it transforms us into people who love each other just the same way that God has loved us. And this command to love one another in the fellowship of Christ That's not an optional add-on. That is part and parcel of the gospel message. One of the implications of this is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you need the church. That is where God has gathered his people. You need the church. If you have tasted the goodness of God, if you are beholding his glory, being transformed into the image of Jesus, you can't do that on your own. You need others You need to do that in a um, loving community of believers, whether that's here in this church or another Bible-believing, gospel-centered, Jesus-is-the-way-the-truth-and-the-life kind of church. And the relationships in that church cannot be shallow, superficial, or consumeristic. That's not what love looks like. That's what our culture looks like. We're we're a culture of consumers, but we've got to check that attitude at the door. I've got a quote here from a guy named Rod Dreher, and I think he does a good job articulating his own experience and what I think might be the experience of others as well. He says, in the first decade of my life as an adult Christian, I left church as soon as services were over. Getting involved with the people there was not interesting. Just Jesus and me was all I wanted and all I needed, or so I thought. 
You might say that I wasn't interested in joining their pilgrimage, that I preferred to be a tourist at church and was too spiritually immature to understand how harmful this was. That consumeristic approach to the community of believers reproduces the fragmentation that is shattering Christianity in the contemporary world. See, his experience is not uncommon. This is how tons of people view the church, especially in America today. But this is not how a genuine disciple approaches the community of believers. This is not how a follower of Jesus who is being transformed into his likeness approaches the community of Christ. That sort of attitude will not produce the process of transformation. In fact, it will actively work against it. The church, it's, the church is not uh, a weekly pep rally where you come in here and inspiring talk. This, this is not an uh, entertainment venue just to add to your list of DVR shows that you watch, but this is the concert, the one you go see live. This is not a social club of like-minded hobbyists. You don't go to church just to people watch, even though some of us are weird and fun to watch. (laughs) The church is a gathering of believers, of people who have tasted and seen that God is good, who have been and are still being transformed by the love of God into the likeness of Christ. It is a group of people who have covenanted or promised together, that's why we practice membership, together to follow Jesus and to live under his rule and reign. And the kind of relationships that that are required for that kind of process, they will not happen apart from some sort of intentionality on your part. You've got to get plugged in. You have to. Into real life where other believers truly know you and love you enough to speak into your life and who allow you to speak into theirs. God has designed the Christian life like one giant three-legged race. We run together or we don't run at all. A few years ago, I was actually giving a, uh, a talk to a middle school camp and I gave a top 10 list of reasons why the church is awesome and you should be a part of it. Uh, that sounds like an infomercial, but... Um, Maybe one day I'd have time to share that whole list with you, but one of the reasons that I think can really, uh, that really connects with what we're talking about now is that the church has mentors. It has godly people, men and women, who can help you in your process of transformation. None of us in this room, the most spiritual Christ-like person in this room, still needs work. And we will until the day we die. And there is someone else in that church who can help you with it. And so my encouragement is to find someone. Joshua had Moses. Mark had Peter. Paul had Timothy, Titus, and Luke. See, in the church, we can learn from those who are wiser and more experienced than us because believe it or not, we don't know everything. Last week, I talked about how disciples were apprentices learning to live, learning the trade of living as children of light from Jesus. Well, one of the ways we can do that is by learning from others who have been walking with Jesus for a while to see what obedience has looked like in their marriage, in their parenting, in their workplace. Asking them to kind of take us under their wing and teach us how do we pray, how do we read the Bible, all of those things. So if you don't have someone, find someone. I'd encourage you to get involved in a small group. That bridges thing, 
is you can come to that and find out a little bit more about small groups. You could come to a Bible Explorer class after the main service. And in one way or other, get connected. Don't be a tourist. Be an apprentice. And, and you guys, this isn't a... I mean, this is how we all work anyway. Relationships is just how people work. Businesses will spend thousands of dollars and a lot of time sending their employees all over the world to maintain relationships with clients and vendors. And most business people who travel could tell you that a lot of the work that takes place doesn't happen in the office but around the dinner table. Why? Because relationships matter. Many of you traveled for Thanksgiving or you're here this Sunday because you're from somewhere else traveling for Thanksgiving. Why? Because relationships matter. We're willing to get in the car and drive when the weather is the worst because relationships matter. It's how we do everything. And so discipleship is no different. So here's the main point. Discipleship requires relationship. Discipleship requires relationship. Transformation does not happen in isolation. You need the church. If you are to love one another as Christ has loved you, you need the church. And if you don't have a church family, uh, well, you're here this morning, so I would like to welcome you to our church. If you're looking for a place, if you've been maybe visiting the last couple Sundays, or maybe you've been here for a couple months, um, but you're still kind of checking it out, you're welcome. We have room for you here. We would love to journey with you. If you want to follow Christ and get on that journey of discipleship, get in the boat with us. We'd love to have you. But if it's not us, don't worry. I don't get commission on attendance, by the way. So if it's not us, it's totally fine if it's another Bible-believing, gospel-centered church. So what I want to do now is I want to turn a corner. I want to get a little bit more practical and, so, and try to look at what these relationships actually look like. What does it actually look like to love one another? So I'm going to do the same thing I did last week. I'm going to give you a list of some characteristics. This is not the end-all, be-all list, but these are some um, key tr- character traits that should, um, that should mark every relationship among disciples. Okay? This comes from a larger list of a mature disciple, and if you want that list, there's a hard copy at the welcome table out back, and you can write it on your Connect card, Disciple Profile, and I'll make sure one gets emailed to you. I know some of you did that last week, but it was crunch time in the office, so your names have not been lost. They're still written in the book of uh, emails, and so it will get emailed to you. But if you want a digital copy, just mark that on your Connect card. One more quick reminder before we get started looking at a list. This is all assuming that you have tasted and seen that God is good. This is assuming that you have experienced the great first love of God. Okay, remember, he says, we love because he first loved us. What I'm talking about right now is the we love part. If you haven't experienced the he loved us first part, that's where you need to start. You need to start with Jesus, and you start with understanding who he is and what he's done for you. But for those of us who are wanting to love one another, Here's what we do. First off, disciples love one another. Well, that was obvious uh, given what we've talked about so far, but let me nuance this. The reason I put it on this list is because I wanted to nuance it just a touch. When I say that we love one another, when the Bible tells us to love one another, what it does not mean is it doesn't mean, um, Jesus didn't say, 
This is my command. Feel warm fuzzies towards one another and pretend like there are no differences and that people don't bother you. It's all fine. That's, that's not what he said. We don't need to pretend that some people's personalities don't rub us the wrong way. We don't need to pretend that there aren't, like, like you just don't get their sense of humor. It's weird. Or, or something. Okay? That's not what it means. What it means is, uh, when it says to love one another as Christ has loved us, that we desire and act in their best interest, in the best interest of the other person, even when, not if, even when, it will mean sacrifice on our part. Sacrifice of money, time, convenience. You're going to have to give up some emotional real estate for these people. And it will not always be easy. You will have to be willing to endure awkward conversations, some difficult situations. But if we're committed to really loving one another with the kind of committed, selfless love that Christ has shown us, man, it is a beautiful thing. And so my practical question for you to consider is, uh, is there anyone in this church that you've been avoiding because they rub you the wrong way? Is there anyone in this church, maybe you haven't been avoiding them, but you really only hang out with the same 10 or 15 people all the time. That's not all bad. I was just promoting small groups, okay? We can't have deep relationships. We can't have deep relationships with everybody. I understand that there will be some people you're closer to than others. But every once in a while, sit in a different pew and just look at the reaction. It's kind of fun. Um, but sit in a different pew, shake hands, get to know someone. Even if you've been here for a couple years and you're like, I'm sorry, I don't even... I've been coming here for years. You've been coming here for years. We've never said hi. I'm sorry. My name is whatever. Get to know. Make an effort to practically reach out and love someone. Second thing. Disciples practice confession and forgiveness, refusing to hold grudges. This one is important. I mean, they all are. But there is no sin so deep that the gospel of grace is not deeper still. Believers are to, are to respond to sins done against them with forgiveness. Jesus warns us very sternly in the parable of the unmerciful servant and his teaching on the Lord's prayer and in other places that we dare not, we dare not withhold from others the grace and forgiveness that's been given to us. Now, you've got to realize that each one of these points could be one or more sermons. And I understand I am painting with a broad brushstroke here. And there, I'm well aware that there are those of you in this room who have been severely hurt by other Christians. Maybe some other person even in this room. So I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying just get over it, stop crying. That's not what I'm saying. I understand it's a process. You might even need to hire a counselor or some kind of mediator, but be sure if you do that, they are committed to the process of forgiveness and reconciliation. But don't let the fact that forgiveness can be a long and difficult process to become an excuse to never really let it go. There's an old saying that goes, uh, bitterness is drinking poison hoping that the other person will die. Don't hold grudges. Be quick to forgive. When you've been offended, hand that offense to Jesus. Ask him for help to forgive. 
Because if you hold on to that hurt and pain, whether out of vengeance or some other motive, that will become a prison that is awfully hard to get out of. You will, brick by brick, be building your own tomb. On the flip side, if you're the one who sinned, you need to confess. You need to own up to it. If you have hurt someone else because you lied, because you didn't follow through on what you said you would do, because you did something that you knew would hurt them, you need to own up to that. And the good news is, you don't have to make excuses. You don't have to pretend to make yourself look better. You know, oh, I didn't know that you didn't like the word. Oh, I, I didn't realize that you could see my Facebook. You don't have to pretend and make excuses. You, you can just be honest with yourself, with them, and with God, and say, I was mean. I was trying to hurt you. I shouldn't have done that. I have no excuse. Will you please forgive me? And then don't do it again. So a question for you to consider. Is there a relationship, especially in the church, but really this could apply to all of life, that needs mending? Do you, do you need to forgive someone? Have you been holding on to a grudge? The longer you hold on, the harder they are to let go of. Or do you need to own up to something that you've done? Do you need to ask for forgiveness? If that's the case, I understand it can be a difficult process. If you need help with that process, make a note on your Connect card. You can mark private so it doesn't get like sent out to everyone in the church. But if you want help, have one of the elders contact you. They can give you some spiritual help and guidance through that process. Don't stay in the darkness here. Okay, number three, disciples serve one another. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love. God has made each of us unique. You've each got talents, gifts, experiences, possessions. You've got a background and a history that can help someone else in this room, probably more than one, peop- one person. And Part of the Christian life, it's, it's both an expectation, but it's also a great privilege that we don't just get in the boat with other Christians, but we actually row together. You serve one, we serve one another, and that can look like, uh, like a formal serving commitment, like helping out on the worship team, on the sound or slides, or teaching in children's church or something along those lines, or it can be a little bit more informal, where you don't necessarily have like, like an official task, but maybe your gift is encouragement. And so you decide that you're routinely going to call some other people in the church just to say, hey, I'm praying for you. I want to hear how you're doing. You write a card. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's hospitality and you start inviting people over once a month. But the point is, all of us need to be serving in some way. So the practical question is, are you? Are you serving your brothers in Christ and sisters? Because that's one of the ways that we love one another. That's one of the ways it looks like to live in the light together. Number four, disciples pursue unity. Now, I heard a sermon this last week that um, made me almost not want to say this uh, because the guy was talking about how uh, back in the 1800s and early 1900s, unity uh, was an excuse to not address slavery because church leaders would disagree about it because some thought it was okay, others didn't. And so they would say, hey, we're, not just, we're just not gonna talk about it. 
We'll just not address it because we want the church to be unified. And it became a smokescreen for protecting an institutionalized evil. So I, I realize what I want to do is I want to nuance this. That, still being, that being said, unity is still incredibly important to Jesus. One of his last prayers is that, Father, make them one as you and I are one. He prayed that you and I and us with other churches like um, Summit View across the street and Grace and Glory down the road and other churches as well that we would be unified. Now there are some things worth dividing over. We don't overlook sin and institutionalized evil. We don't overlook core biblical doctrines like the divinity of Christ, like the inspiration of scripture. We don't overlook those kinds of things. But a lot of the time, that's not what we're dividing over. A lot of the time, we get a little gossipy and backbitey over things that are like not that big of an issue. Like the fact that the shades are orange instead of whatever color you want them to be. Like the fact that we have pews instead of chairs. Don't divide over that kind of stuff. Don't, don't get all gossipy and backbitey. Even when sometimes it can really bother you. Now I'm not saying don't address it. There are healthy ways to address it. To talk to people in love. And in fact, um, just as a heads up, for those of us who are members of Flight of Bible or, or you're a regular attender, uh, you might know that we have a building committee that's basically trying to figure out what do we do to get more seats? We need some more space. And I don't know what the whole answer is going to be. I don't know what they're going to come up with and what the elders are going to decide. So I'm not like, you know, trying to warm you up for something. Um, that decision's still down the road. But I do know that whatever's decided, 100, it, it will not please 100% of the people 100%. There's going to be somebody, probably more than one, who feel like we should do it a different way. And uh, I'll just share with, share with you my own conviction. The options that have been given and that the elders and building committee are deciding on, none of them are biblical like mandates. They're all things that we can agree to disagree about. So I'm just encouraging you, if you're the one whose idea is not being implemented, that's a chance for you to pursue unity. That's a chance for you not to create your own little faction and start, none of you would really start picketing, I don't think. Um, <laughs> but it's your chance, that, that's going to be one of your chances to pursue unity. All right, last one, then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Number five, disciples spur one another on. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's not just a verse for men's ministry, that's a verse for everybody. Hebrews 10.24 says, let us consider how we ought to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. The process of discipleship is awesome. It is fun, but it is long and hard. And there will be times out of exhaustion, out of laziness, out of whatever, that you just really kind of slouch. You cease to really pursue Christ. And, and you need a, a brother or sister to come alongside and pray for you and encourage you and say, no, you gotta, you, don't give up reading your Bible. Here's some things that have been helpful for me. Let me share with you what I've seen. You need a brother or sister to say, let's keep on keeping on. At other times, some of us, all of us at one point, we will wander back into sin, just like a dog returning to its vomit. A fool returns to his folly. 
and we need another believer to say, what are you doing? Don't you see what Christ has called you out of? Don't you see how this sin is hurting you and those around you? And in a loving but firm way, call you back to faithfulness in Christ. If you really love him, if he really is your Lord, you need to obey him and they'll rebuke you. We need others who will do that. I need others who will do that. So, is there someone who's been trying to spur you on and you don't want that and you've been ignoring them or pushing them off? Or, on the other hand, have you been avoiding a conversation that you really know you should encourage this person because they're going through a hard time? Have you seen someone struggling and, and failed to say something? Maybe you should just let them know, hey, I'm praying for you. Send them a text or whatever. So these are our five things. Disciples love one another, practice confession and forgiveness, refusing to hold grudges. Disciples serve one another. Disciples pursue unity and disciples spur one another on. It's not an exhaustive list, but it'll get us started. And like I mentioned last week, if you are the sensitive conscience type person and you're just feeling like, oh man, I'm totally a failure right now. Um, It's okay. It's a room of grace. Christianity is a gospel of grace. No one's expecting you to be perfect. My encouragement is just to pick one thing on this list that you need to work on. And by grace-driven effort, by the grace of God, by the help of those around you, start working on it. We're not trying to bring ourselves into the light here. Remember, this is how we respond to God's great first love. All right, let me wrap this up. Discipleship requires relationship. Transformation does not happen in isolation. And so that's why in 1 John 1, he says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We do have fellowship with God, but we also have fellowship with one another. Discipleship starts when we taste and see that the Lord is good, that we begin to behold his glory in the person and work of Jesus and that we begin the process and we are brought out into the light and now we are connected with God and simultaneous to that, we are given a new family of brothers and sisters and weird uncles and we come together and we love one another. The same gospel that solved the vertical problem solved the horizontal one as well. And now it is our obligation and our great privilege and joy to love one another as Christ has loved us. This primarily happens in the local church. And so please, find a way to get connected. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of your church. Thank you that you have not left us on our own that we have a herd. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room. As I was preparing this sermon, Lord, you know that that I just was considering how many people in this room have invested in me and in my life and have helped me with very tangible things like my vehicles and very uh, spiritual and emotional things. And so I thank you for what I have seen and what I have experienced. And I know, God, that I don't see everything. I thank you that there is love and fellowship among this body that I have no awareness of. Thank you for making us a family. And so Lord Jesus, I ask that you would help us to love one another like you have loved us. Help us not to give up on one another. May we be a people of forgiveness, of unity, and selfless sacrifice. Help us to prefer one another, to honor one another, and to serve one another. 
Help us to love one another and may the world see our love and believe in you, Lord Jesus. Amen.